Seated, Amen. Please. Be seated. And it's so good to be back with you. I've, I've missed you. We've had a guest preacher the last couple of weeks. Uh, I have, I think I've preached uh, five different events over the last nine days, three different states, and I have seen God save people, redeem people, restore people, break chains, reconcile people to God and to each other. I've seen some amazing things, and I. I, uh, last night I was in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Many of you have prayed for my brother-in-law since my sister passed away back in 2010. You have prayed for my young niece who was nine, nine years old at the time. I got to do my brother-in-law's wedding last night. Um, and it's kind of strange for a brother-in-law um, to lose a sister and for that family to remain so close and connected, but we're still his family. So it was just so cool to welcome a new woman into our family last night. And I jumped on a plane. Our plane landed and apparently our pilot didn't pull up far enough, so then we had to wait for a tow person to come and pull us up closer. We could get off the plane, and I'm here today, and I'm awake and glad to be with you. Last Sunday morning, I preached at a church called Preston Road Church in Dallas. It's in the Highland Park area, and they have an early service. It's been a while since I've preached in an early service, and, and a lot of times when I'm preaching at places, and uh, it's either early in the morning or right after lunch, uh, there's a story I tell. I told you this a few years ago, but um, about 15 years ago, early on in my preaching career, I was asked to preach at a church of 15 people for a friend, and I showed up, and there was one guy in that church. His name was Cowboy, and Cowboy slept through the entire worship service, all right? He did not sleep just through the sermon. He slept through songs. He slept through the prayers. He slept through communion. I was the only person that day because I was the only mobile person who could who could even pass the trays. I did everything, and I, I had to wake Cowboy up to give him the bread I prayed for the cup and had to wake him up again to give him the cup. He slept through everything. Then he walked up to me after church, and I could see this guy. I I could tell, this dude's about to walk up and say, great job, young man. And I was prepared to respond with, what was your favorite part? Like, what did you really enjoy? How did God move in your life? And he shook my hand and slipped me a $50 bill. So I decided just to let it slide, all right? So I've... Dude, I have been paid off before, all right? So if you want to sleep today, slip me a 10, 20, 50, 100, and we'll call it even, all right? So I told that story last Sunday morning at an 8 o'clock worship service. It's in Highland Park. If you know anything about Highland Park, Highland Park is it's one of the wealthiest areas in all of the United States. Uh, and even though it's a more progressive church, I mean, I'm, I'm preaching in front of politicians and scientists and that a lot of people wear suits and ties. But there was one guy in early service who had a T-shirt on. He just did not fit like he wasn't wearing what everyone else was wearing there. And he came up to me afterwards. And it was a sermon I, I preached on just the invitation into Jesus and kingdom life. And I told a couple of stories from Sycamore View in Memphis. And he came up to me afterwards. And I'm not preacher exaggerating with this. The guy had tears in his eyes. And he came up to me and he said, Josh, I... I haven't been to church in 20 years. And my brother invited me to come with him to church. And I didn't know there was going to be a guest preacher, but I I came and I just wanted you to know how God moved in my life today. And he's just started giving me, he just started bearing witness and bearing testimony of God's work in his life that day. And then he said that you told a story about a guy giving you $50 a few years ago. And I just wanted you to have this because I felt like you have the kind of heart that could do something good with it. I put it in my pocket. I went home. When I was driving to a place in Arkansas where I was speaking that night, I looked. He had slipped me $180. I've got to start telling this story more often, man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but for him to say, I trust that you could do something with it, I mean, it's not like I, I mean, I decided I was going to invest in Memphis, so I bought a new Mike Conley jersey. I wanted for, I'm just joking. So 
for Fawn and Tammy, you have uh, more than $180 coming from my family to you from a guy who was touched by Jesus last Sunday morning. Uh, I'm so excited to be with you. We're in a series called Streams. This is the fifth part in this series. We're talking about different streams of Christian thought. And this morning, I'm talking about the social justice stream. And I want you to hang on with me because of all the streams, this is probably the phrase that is the most loaded It's probably the stream that we come to and we interpret through political lenses, through what radio heads and and TV shows have talked about it. But I want to open up Scripture to us today, and I don't care if you're a Republican, a Democrat, liberals, progressives, conservatives, I don't care. I want to talk about biblical justice and what the Bible has to say about this and how we can go deeper into God. And I I think today I'm going to probably, I mean, you can't preach about justice without having a prophetic voice in some kind of way. So I'm going to probably offend some people and convict people today. And if so, feel free to email me. My email address is annamosier at uh, ymail.net. All right. Um, Open your Bibles to Luke chapter four. Let's start there today. Luke chapter four, one of my favorite stories. God opened this up to me probably 15, 16 years ago. It's been one of my favorite chapters ever since then. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, let me stop right there. Of all four Gospels, Luke is the one who talks the most about the Holy Spirit. And back in chapter 4, verse 1, if you have your Bibles open, it talks about how Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was full of the Spirit after his baptism at the end of chapter 3. And now in chapter 14, 4, verse 14, it talks about how Jesus has been filled with the Spirit. So the Spirit of God is at work in Jesus as he enters into his public ministry. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And let me pause right there, all right? Because there's this phrase in your Bible, if you'll go to that next slide. There's this phrase in, that, in verse 16 that where he had been brought up. All right, this is more than just like his hometown. This is a word that is about how, like, the people who have nurtured him and nourished him. This is, this is Jesus preaching in a place where he was a young Jewish boy going to synagogues, going to school in the synagogue, which is what young Jewish boys would do to learn the Torah, to learn grammar, to learn the things of God, what it means to be a man. These are people who had taught Jesus in vacation Bible school. He, these are, he's standing up in front of people that he has known. This is more than just a homecoming party. These are people who had nurtured and nourished him for many years. He stood up in that synagogue takes the book of Isaiah, and we don't really know, like, I mean, was, was it on Isaiah 61? How far did Jesus have to look and scroll? But Jesus ends up quoting from Isaiah 61. Now, there are many scholars and theologians who will say that Luke 4, what I'm reading today, what we're studying, is the thesis of not just the gospel of Luke, but of Luke and Acts. The Luke and Acts needs to be read and interpreted through the lens of what Jesus says about himself and what he proclaims in Luke chapter 4. That this is a thesis in some ways. It is a table of contents of how the rest of Luke plays out and how the church behaves and lives in the book of Acts. So here's what Jesus says. He says, it is written in that place, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives 
freedom from the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, In verse 18, let me point out a couple of things in this verse. The word therefore proclaim is where we get the word evangelism. So whenever it comes to justice and service and compassion, this isn't just about Jesus being good news to the poor. What he's proclaiming about himself is that I have been sent. I've been empowered by the Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor. It's not just serving the poor, caring for the poor, tending for the poor. It's that Jesus is saying, I got something to say to the poor. I've got to teach people. Proclamation. And I think this is a really good word for Sycamore View, for churches who over the last decade or maybe throughout a history of a church's life have become more service-oriented, compassion-oriented, have adopted strategic partners. We want to make a difference in our community and the world. the, The call of Jesus is not just to go out and serve with your hands and give money to those who need it. There are things we have to say about Jesus. You've got to proclaim. You've got to speak. You've got to declare. You've got to invite. Proclamation is what Jesus says. I have been sent to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, the word poor here, and I want to talk about this a little bit later. Uh, if we're not careful, what we do when, the, especially in New Testament, talks about the poor is we spiritualize it and we make it out to be what Jesus is telling people to do is to go out and care for those who are poor in spirit. That's not what Jesus says. This is a Greek word that uh, stands for, this is, it represents those who are economically impoverished, but not just that. It's those who've been pushed to the, margin, to the margins of society. It's a disenfranchised. It's those who've been pushed out, who have, who have lost their community, that Jesus has been sent to them to restore dignity to people who've either lost it or who have never had it. So he proclaims good news to the poor. He's saying this about himself. Now, uh, if you keep reading. In verse 20, it says, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He he read this. He sat down. All eyes are fixed on him. And it's like these people are like, You've got to tell us more. If you read that, which is a messianic promise, people latched on Isaiah 61 as what the Messiah would bring into the world. You've got to say a little more. This has only happened to me one time in my preaching career that I sat down after preaching a sermon and people just stared at me like, dude, you've got to get up and say more. Usually this doesn't happen. I was 21 years old. It was the first time I ever preached in a prison. And I had 200 inmates. And they had a two-hour worship service. And I grew up in a white church where you just preach 22 to 25-minute sermons. So that's what I did. And I sat down and nobody moved. And these guys were just looking at me. And the chaplain looked over and was like, Dude, they're used to like 50 to a minute to an hour-long sermons. You better get up and say more. And if inmates look at you and tell you to preach more, you get up and you preach more, all right? I don't remember if I just told them the same thing I had just said or what, but Jesus sits down. It's like these people are looking like, you've got to say more. And what Jesus says is today. It's the Greek word semeron, today. This is fulfilled in your hearing. What Jesus is declaring is that This isn't a promise for the future, and it's not something that you could have gotten yesterday. It's that right now, the age of the reign of God is breaking into the world, and this is really good news for the world. So Jesus offers up this great news. It's what he's going to live out through the rest of his life. But then you read read verse 22, and listen to this, all right? So right after that, verse 22, all spoke well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And then Jesus tells a little story. And then in verse 28, what happens is all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard him. 
and they got up, they drove him out of town, they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. How is that to like welcome to ministry, Jesus? You know, like people love him in verse 22. A few verses later, they're ready to chunk him off a cliff because the story Jesus told in in between that was a story about how the kingdom of God is breaking down racial barriers, ethnic barriers. God is doing a new thing, and people were ready to kill him. Because what happens is when individual conviction leads to social action, it has individual, social, and systematic impact. When individual conviction leads to a revolution that turns the world upside down, which is what Jesus does, it leads to individual, social, and systematic impact. And and it's hard for us to discern what to do. I, I think most of us, when it comes to justice, individually, we're on board of how do I rid my heart of any form of bigotry, racism, any animosity toward a person or toward another group of people. We get that God calls us to be those kind of people. Socially, I think we kind of get that too. It's hard. It's hard to live into. But socially, if how do we break down walls that keep people from coming together? And how do we bring together generations and races and people from different experiences? Well, what the church really struggles with, especially, it's systematic. Like, how do, what's the church's role when it comes to education reform, immigration reform, when it comes to the poor, the women's rights? And the list could just go on, right? Like, how involved do we get in the public sector? So let me kind of walk through how the New Testament talks about this and helps show us. Individually, Jesus calls people to live lives of justice. And I could, this could go on for hours, the places Jesus calls us to do this. In Luke chapter 10, there's the story of the Good Samaritan. This is a story that even non-Christians know. It's the story of a man who came to Jesus and said, who's my neighbor? And Jesus basically tells him a story that ends up, Jesus doesn't say this, but I'm I'm kind of paraphrasing how the story goes. Jesus almost flips it by saying, hey, in the kingdom of God, if you're living for God, who's not your neighbor? Like, who is there not to love? And it's a story that ends with Jesus saying, you need to go and do likewise. Like how God extends mercy to one person, you've got to do likewise. In Matthew chapter 25, it's where Jesus tells a parable and he says, hey, there were those who were hungry and you... You need to feed them, the thirsty, the naked, the, those in, uh, the naked, the, the, those in prison. And, and there are six different people Jesus lists that when you take care of these people, you're really taking care of me. And this, there's a parable. And then Jesus says, if you don't take care of them, you're not taking care of me. And sometimes we read stories like that, and I think my response is, well, if I just get two of the six, like, is that all right to, like, get the favor of God, you know? And Jesus tells this parable inviting people that, hey, there is individual responsibility. There's social responsibility when it comes to Jesus and faith. In Luke chapter 14, what Jesus said, he told a story. He convicted people and he said, hey, when you throw a banquet, when you throw a party, you don't invite people who can invite you back. But instead, you don't invite the poor, the lame, the blind. You invite people that can never, ever throw you back. Have you ever thrown a party like that? Because Jesus, it's like a command. Hey, you just need to do this sometime. Churches need to do this sometime. Jesus often healed social diseases before he healed physical diseases. So when it came with people with leprosy, that if you touched a person with leprosy or they touched you, it meant that you became unclean. Like you could, They couldn't come within 50 feet of you, and you couldn't go within 50 feet of them, or you were unclean. And multiple times, Jesus touches people with leprosy before he heals them, healing a social disease before he healed a physical disease, re- restoring people to community, giving them dignity. 
But then there's also systematic justice that happens even in the New Testament. Jesus flips over tables in the temple because the powers that be were oppressing people. In Acts chapter 6, there are widows who were not being taken care of. There was a system that was oppressing them. And a command was given to, hey, we need to make sure we got people and leaders who were praying and preaching, but we also have an issue, and we need some people to fill the issue. Now let me take you to Amos chapter 5 real quick. I don't really like Amos uh, because Amos comes strong. Anytime I read Amos, I feel like he's messing with my stuff. And I've gotten to a point in my faith where it's like, I'm okay sometimes with God messing with my heart. Just don't mess with my stuff, you know. Amos chapter 5, verse 12, it says this. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sin. That there are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. That should be, it's better said, it's in the gates. Because for them, the gate was the place where the poor and the marginalized could come and could offer up their case for justice. And Amos, God is using Amos to go after the people of God to say, you've, you've broken down the very place where the poor and marginalized have a voice. You're not giving them a voice there. And then a few verses later in verse 21, God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice, fellow, uh, choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. God is telling them your worship services are electric. Your praise is great. People are singing songs with all their hearts. Preaching is dynamite. People are loving it. They're shouting amens. You're praying prayers that matter. And then you leave church and you're patting each other on the back saying, hey, that was a great worship service. Let's come back next Sunday and let's do the same thing. And then people are going throughout their week and they're not living out what they have just worshiped. God's saying, you come together and you have great worship services, but if it is not leading to life in the kingdom and advancing the kingdom, it, it ticks off the heart of God. God began moving in my life, probably 15, 16. I was, a, I was in college when God began opening me up to justice and compassion. I traveled my freshman year. I've told you this before. I've traveled, I traveled to the Bay Area with about 25 college students to live for a week for a spring break campaign. And it was the first time I had really done ministry with the homeless, that I did ministry that week in prisons and jails, among drug addicts, uh, and that we spent a day on Castro Street, which is the largest gay district in the United States. And it was a week where God began breaking down the little religious Bible Belt bubble I had been in almost all of my life. And God began to teach me at that point, homeless people have names and they have stories. Uh, God began teaching me that the call of Christians is not just to hand out turkeys on Thanksgiving and blankets when it's cold, but it's to invest in people and know their names and their stories. Uh, when Katrina happened, I was living at a time when we were told that there were two buses of people in New Orleans who were driving to where I was preaching at the time. So we put together a group to care for them. And as they were arriving, there were two elderly people on the bus who, because of stress, had heart attacks and died on the bus. So we're receiving people whose homes were now demolished, who had lost loved ones, and also people who had died on the bus. And God was just peeling off layers from my eyes, teaching me what it means to invest in people. 
At a young age, God began moving in me in ways that opened me up to the power of racial reconciliation and breaking down these walls. And I didn't have language to really describe it at the time, but it's always been a passion deep inside of me. And what I have realized is that uh, the question of how to love a neighbor and who is a neighbor is one I can never stop asking in my life. And I, I have also come to the conviction I do not have the privilege to ignore stories and experiences from other people. Uh, too often when it comes to racial injustice or forms of injustice, we want to try to tell people how to think or we want them to ignore their past experiences to get them to where we think they need to go instead of honoring their stories, their experiences, hearing them out. And not trying to speak or in a way of trying to just um, tell them that, uh, um, to leave them in that place forever, uh, but to honor whatever story and experience is driving them in their lives, what stories and experiences have formed them in a way to help bring healing and restoration into a better tomorrow. There are three Hebrew words for justice that are often interpreted in the biblical justice way. One is mishfat. This word for justice is used over a hundred times in the Old Testament. Whenever you read places in the prophets, throughout any of the Old Testament, in the Psalms where it talks about God executing justice. This is about God setting the world right. And it's not just something God does, it's something God asks his people to do. There's also the word hesed, which is really hard in the English language to know how to translate that. It's steadfast love, it's kindness, it's unfailing love. And when you see how God talks about Hesed, it's something God gives humanity and then God asks humans to give it to each other. It's covenant love. It's deep love. And I've realized in my own life when I am lacking with compassion to give to others, it's usually a time in my life where I am failing to stare at the face of God to realize how much compassion God has on me. The third word is Shalom. And Shalom shows up hundreds of times in the Old Testament. It's about peace. It's about harmony with God, with neighbors, with nature. So for us, when it comes to justice, it's what is the role of the church when it comes to this? And how do we equip the church to engage a culture that is constantly changing and shifting? How do we equip? Because we don't have the privilege not to talk about things, right? But we also can't be an issue-driven church that makes life and church about taking care of issues and not chasing after the heart of God. This is hard, man. It's hard. Um, a few weeks ago, I was at a conference in Kansas City. I told you before, I got a friend, Caleb Coltenbach. He wrote a book called Messy Grace because he has such a cool story. He was raised by two parents. I guess he was born into the world with two parents. They divorced when he was two. They both ended up coming out as gay later on in his life. He despised Christians because he was a part of gay parades. They would have Christian groups that would hold signs and shoot water guns full of urine on them. And he just despised the name Christian. Went to a Bible study later on in high school. Ended up giving his life to Jesus. Is now a pastor out on the West Coast. And Caleb, after reading the Bible, came to a conviction that marriage is between a man and a woman. So imagine going home and telling your mom and your dad who have chosen to live a different kind of life, what your new convictions are, caused a lot of turmoil. God also reconciled a lot of that. So Caleb has become someone who steps into a lot of churches because the LGBTQ community is very important to him because it's the life he li I mean, those were a lot of his friends growing up, yet he also has this conviction, marriages between a man and a woman, 
and he lives wanting to teach churches what it means to still be a safe place for the LGBTQ folks and parents who are struggling with this, families who are struggling with it. So we were in Kansas City, and one night he said, hey, man, I have dinner tonight with a guy named Matthew Vines. I want you to come with me. Matthew Vines wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian. Uh, Matthew Vines, is a, he's an advocate for LGBTQ community, but he and Caleb have struck up a beautiful friendship where they often speak in churches together. So I went to dinner. I hung out with them. Because Caleb's become a really good friend. I lean on him a lot on how to help churches navigate issues of justice and what it means to have convictions and to still be full of mercy and grace. And I'm sitting there with Matthew Vines, and I thought, man, if I wish churches could see these two people model friendship because they haven't landed in the same place. But they care for churches. And I really appreciated the humility of Matthew Vines because he often goes into conservative churches not to try to convince them of his convictions, but to try to make known to them how important it is for you to become a place where we tend to the hearts of people who may be in a different place to us and we give voice to others. And it's taught me that faith, it involves action, not just belief, not just things we say, but what we live. William Penn once said, true godliness does not turn men out of the world, but enables them to live better in it and excites their endeavors to mend it. There are a couple of things we have to reconcile in our faith. Because I know we're feeding from the news. We're also feeding from the gospel. We have a church that we dearly love. And some of the things we have to reconcile in our faith and how we do life is, I think it's right for us to care for the unborn. But if we're going to care for the unborn, how do we be a church? And how does the church become a church that makes it known to the world that if you are single or you have a pregnancy that was unexpected, that we want you to come be a part of us because we want to take care of your kid and we also want to walk alongside of you? Um, how do we reconcile in our faith the desire to have a more secure America but also reconcile the hundred plus verses that talk about what it means for the people of God to care for immigrants and foreigners and strangers and aliens. Uh, How do we care for the poor in a way that God wants us to care for a poor, not just have presuppositions that they're lazy or they don't want to work, but maybe they are people who have something to teach us about the kingdom of God and the goodness of God. Because what I've realized in my life is how we treat groups of people right now is going to make a difference of how their kids and grandkids are going to trust the church years from now. And if we're not treating them kindly now and how we speak about them in any arena, is not treating them with the love of God, treating them as if they are our neighbors, it's going to hinder the work of the church years from now when it comes to generations who haven't even been born. I don't want us to spiritualize Jesus. When Jesus talks about caring for the poor and caring for the oppressed and caring for the blind, he's not just talking about those who are spiritually poor, oppressed, and blind. One of every six verses in the Gospel of Luke talks about the poor and oppressed. That's got to mess with you just a little bit. There's one guy, and I don't even know how to say his name. If you go to that next quote up there, I think this is a guy that was probably raised in Arkansas. It sounds like a Mississippi kind of name, all right? It's from the South. It says, the road to holiness necessarily passes through the world of action. Let me speak this, all right? I want to speak a word to the Democrats, to people who may consider yourself to be a little more progressive. I don't like bringing politics into the sermon. I don't consider myself a Republican or a Democrat. Some people look at that and they're like, man, you're wishy-washy and you don't have convictions. And that's, that's not true at all. I care about a lot of these issues. 
There was a time in my life I would say I'm neither one. I just want to follow Jesus, but I've tried to find other ways to talk about that because the way sometimes I can talk about it makes it sound like if you're one that you can't be a follower of Jesus, and I, I think God has helped me grow beyond that. To Democrats in the room, when it comes to social justice a lot of t- or biblical justice, a lot of times it's easy for you to think that this is something you own and that you do well and that you care about. And a lot of times what we can do is we can think that conservatives and Republicans don't have a care for the poor or for the hurting or for the marginalized. And I want to encourage you to find some of them because they care and you can learn from and you, and you can find common ground. To the Republicans and more conservative people in the room, I don't want you to think because there are radio heads or people who have told you if you've ever heard the phrase social justice run for your life to stay away from it or to just let the liberals or progressives or Democrats have the phrase social justice and you care about personal responsibility. I want to encourage you to know that even if social justice isn't a phrase you want to use or social gospel has reasons to scare us, I want you to realize that the gospel is social that justice matters in the social arena and that Jesus is leading the church beyond ourselves to be a part of how he is redeeming the entire world. The social justice stream has its weaknesses because it can be an end in itself. It can often be a works-based righteousness of let's just care for people and give money and do this and do that and engage in activities and initiatives. And there can be some weaknesses. But the social justice stream also needs two other streams right there with it. The social justice stream needs the evangelical stream. And I think this is a word, especially for the Sycamore View Church right now, because as we engage in more and more compassion, we've got to ask ourselves, where's the invitation? Like, who are we caring for in the world? As we engage in work camp homes and, and, and the 10 strategic partners, that Jesus doesn't just call us to care for them. He calls us to invite them into Jesus. Social justice, following Jesus, is not just about what you do for the world. It's how you're inviting people in the world to come into a relationship and to a covenant with Jesus. Social justice stream also needs the contemplative stream. Because if we care about action and justice and compassion and service, but we have no roots, we're not tapping into the heart of God, what's going to happen is what happens to almost all people who start engaging in that without any, out any roots. It means that they stay on fire for a cause for about six months to three years, and they run out of steam because there's nothing that they are rooted in. People who are concerned about justice need to have prayer lives that are so strong. It can't go away. So strong that you're rooted in something deep. Uh, have I messed with anyone today? Um, let's bow our heads. God, in this room, where there are places where forms of bigotry, racism, anger, hostility towards people or groups of people need to go to die Will you declare death over them today and release us into your freedom? Where there needs to be deep conviction of the things that matter to your heart, make it abundantly clear what it is that we need to bank on, the resurrection of Jesus, that you're the hope for the world. Uh, And God, where it is today that you need to peel off lenses that we've allowed to put on, that you need to transform filters on our eyes or on our hearts so that we can see more clearly what it is you want of us. God, will you have your way with us? And I just want to declare today the wonder of Jesus above us, below us, all around us, inside of us.
and call us deeper into your heart, into your mission, that we will let go of things we need to let go of. God, for me, to let go of any of my own agendas that get in the way, let go of them so that we can become less and you can become more. And we cry out today in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to ask shepherds, prayer leaders, go where you are today. We're going to sing a, a song. Just call us into the heart of God. If you need someone to pray with you, if you need to bring something before the church, if you want to surrender a life to Jesus today in baptism, we want to celebrate with you today. Let's stand up. Let's sing together.